It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report for Monday, February 12, 2018. It's the birthday of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. On the rack front, we continue our reporting on EMR and rack audits. This morning, whistleblower attorney Mary Inman reports on a court case that might resolve the question of who bears the burden of responsibility when a facility relies on non-medical software companies that create electronic medical records. Also on the rundown, Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer will report on a Medicaid Advantage program that's uh, having a problem in the state of Texas. Healthcare Attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Rack Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell reports on the latest developments in the 340B drug program. And Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley has news on the therapy cap issue. She'll also have the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. In my report today, I have two items. One I'm happy to report, and the other one I'm disappointed that I must report. A few weeks ago, I was preparing a talk and found on the CGS site that they were going to be auditing the billing of a specific HixPix code for spinal injection. Since I was not familiar with that code, I looked it up and discovered that it was a code that was deleted at the end of 2016. Well, that didn't make sense. Would CGI actually go back over a year to audit records? That did not seem like the new and friendlier audit process that CMS touted. Well, I contacted CGS about it, and before the day was out, they acknowledged that they made a mistake and they corrected the code. Less than one day to get a response? Wow, that's excellent customer service provided by CGS. Now, that's the good report. But then two weeks after that excellent experience, I received a notice from CGS entitled, How to Submit Documentation Requested by a Part A Educator. Okay, that seems reasonable. You have a denial. have your educational session. You need to send additional documentation to support that argument. And it makes sense they would want to make sure the documents go to the right place. Maybe once again they were going out of their way to provide excellent customer service. But then it all went bad. How? Well, here are their instructions. The first page of the facts must be a blank page and can only contain the words Part AMR Additional Documentation Requested by Educator. Page 2 must contain the DCN and doc handle number the number of pages in the facts, and the hospital contact, nothing else. Page three and on is the actual documentation. Now, okay, that's pretty darn picky, and many will object and should object because they're faxing uh, PHI and cannot have their HIPAA waiver on the cover sheet. But that's not the bad part. The bad part is that CGS also instructs that when a hospital is submitting documentation for multiple claims, quote, It cannot be sent in the same fax transmission. These documents must be submitted separately at different times of the day using different fax machines in order to ensure receipt of the documents to the proper location, end quote. In fact, they're so serious about this that they actually use all capitals 
and a bold red font for the words cannot, same, must, and separately. Yep, that's right. They expect hospital staff to prepare the documents by their exacting instructions, then fax one set of documents without a HIPAA waiver. That person then must wait an undefined period of time during that day and find a different fax machine somewhere else in the hospital to fax the next set and so on. Imagine if there were 10 documents to fax. How long would it take to find 10 fax machines in the hospital? Now, I have to wonder, did the customer service department at CGS run out of fax machines to fax the memo about improving customer service to the education department? Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. What's the latest? Well, it's relief, Chuck. The bill that was passed last Friday to fund the federal budget included a permanent fix to the Medicare Part B hard therapy cap that had been in place since January 1st of this year at 2010 for PT and speech combined in 2010 for occupational therapy. Um, The legislation is a permanent fix, eliminates the annual therapy lobbying effort to stop the cap, which had gone on for 20 years, and assurance for beneficiaries that they'll receive medically necessary therapy that's uninterrupted by all the political nagging. The legislation lowered the threshold for targeted manual medical review from the current 3,700, which has been in place since 2012, to $3,000, and that'll be in place through 2027, and then it'll be incremented by a medical economic index. While the threshold amount for medical review will be lowered, CMS has signaled they're not going to give any increased funding. Uh, currently, they task this to the Supplemental Review Contra Strategic Health Solutions. I would expect that this would continue, but CMS is stating that there'll be no more money for it. The budget deal also includes provisions that took the therapy industry by surprise, or shall I say shock most notably reducing payments for services in which a PTA or an OTA is involved under Medicare Part B. By 1-1-2019, the Secretary is directed to develop a modifier to be used when therapy services are delivered in part or in whole by an assistant, and the new modifier will be in place for claims submitted beginning 1-1-2020. And finally, on 1-1-2022, the payment for PTAs and OTAs will be paid at 85% of the Medicare physician fee schedule. Now, what's going on right now is there's still a great deal of confusion regarding adjudication of claims and the appending of the KX modifier. Stay tuned. While some members of the Therapy Cap Coalition have indicated the KX is to be used at the 2010 level, others are awaiting specific instructions and regulatory guidance as to when to append the KX given that CMS will provide instructions to the MAC and the MACs are not asking that claims over 2010 have are are asking that claims over 2010 have the KX modifier in order to be paid. My recommendation is no harm, no foul. Let's keep putting it on there until CMS advises otherwise. Our poll this morning is to get a barometer to see at your facility or system, are you billing outpatient therapy under Part B for either PT, OT, or speech-language pathology services. Check one if you are. Check two if no, you're not. Check not sure if you're not sure. And if it's not applicable to you because you're not a provider, please let us know. Chuck, we'll test that barometer a little bit later in the program. Back to you. 
Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Modern Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of this very interesting Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Tim Powell, J. Paul Spencer, and our special guest, whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. She is calling in live from London. This is Monday, it's February 12, 2018, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. AHIMA has partnered with Marcy to present the first risk adjustment coding and auditing course that prepares professionals for risk adjustment coding and goes a step further to address chart auditing. This course provides extensive in-depth education for those working in risk adjustment and who need a thorough understanding of HCCs, coding, and auditing. Coders must recognize how documentation issues affect both revenue opportunities and compliance concerns gain understanding of a methodology to audit charts, logically categorize findings, and create a method for helping ensure findings are appropriately addressed. For more information, visit ahima.org slash risk adjustment course. Standing by in London is our special guest whistleblower, Attorney Mary Inman. She has the news concerning a court case dealing with EMR and RAC audits. Also standing by is RAC Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. He has the latest news on the 340B drug program. Now let's check in with health care attorney David Glazer. He's reporting on some risky business this morning. David, what is risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So a Monitor Monday listener had her general counsel contact me to see if I could help resolve a dilemma. Her hospital employs a number of physicians, and they had recently engaged two different consultants to review the physician's documentation. One consultant said the documentation was pretty good, but that approximately 20% of the records lacked documentation to support the E&M service build. The second consultant reached almost the exact opposite conclusion, asserting that 80% of the charts lacked documentation to support the claim. So they had a bunch of questions. Do they need to refund right now? Should they hire a consultant to come in and do a review? A third consultant, I guess that would be. Does the 60-day rule apply? So let's consider those options. In fact, it might be worth taking a minute for you to think about how you'd handle the situation. So first, does the 60-day rule apply? That's almost a trick question. Of course the 60-day rule applies, but the 60 days aren't running yet because we don't know if there's an overpayment. The 60-day rule requires you to refund within 60 days of identifying an overpayment. But until you've determined that you have an overpayment and then quantified it, your only requirement is to work diligently to determine whether an overpayment exists, and if so, its size. Only then does the 60-day clock run. So how do we dissolve, dissolve, let's try that again, how do we resolve the dispute between the consultants? I suppose we could dissolve them too. While hiring a third consultant might have some appeal, it isn't an automatic answer. What you really need is to make sure that whoever you have doing the review is competent. So how do you do that? Regular listeners know that I say you should ask lawyers to show you the rule. The same basic principle applies to consultants. Have them explain how they reached a particular conclusion. I've seen coding consultants disagree over whether to assign a location point when one consultant felt that leg was not specific enough because it didn't specify right leg or left leg, whereas the other consultant assigned a location point. Ask each consultant to justify their decision. The only way to resolve disputes like this is to dig into the details. It's messy and slow, but important. 
I've been shocked to find that when I dig into work done by so-called experts, there are glaring errors. Don't blindly trust someone to do good work. Uh, you, you might add that adding a third consultant isn't going to solve this problem at all, and whether you have one or three, you need to go through this work. If you ask me what I thought separates great lawyers from good lawyers, I'd say that the greats really dive into the facts and don't rely on explanations from others. So should the client be refunding on 20% of the charts or 80% of the charts? So this is the really super trick question. We only have a documentation review, so we can't know. Remember, missing documentation does not automatically require a refund. Now, I know a number of people have doubts about this, which is why on March 1st, Rack Monitor and I will be doing a webinar in which we will fully explain the detail of the legal argument that the documentation guidelines are just guidelines and not an explicit requirement. So if you want to find out how to avoid unnecessary refunds, sign up, and Emily has the information under the Handouts tab. Finally, in honor of Valentine's Day, I want to invite you to a free webinar. So my firm and I will be explaining how to respond to love letters from CMS and discussing topics like voluntary disclosure. It's over the lunch hour, 1 o'clock Eastern on Valentine's Day, but our webinars are also available on demand. For information on that, shoot me a quick email. So Chuck, when you're working with a consultant, you want to channel Marvin Gaye. Ask them what's going on, then ask them again what's going on. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis, where the temperature is 2 degrees. The controversy surrounding the 340B drug discount program continues, and with the latest news, here is Rack Monitor contributing editor and Monitor Monday National Correspondent, Tim Powell. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Chuck. And I wanted to first start by saying that I am not telepathic, and I cannot see the future. Uh, it just happened that certain events have, have, have come up that made my report a little more important, I think. Regulations impacting hospitals who acquire their drugs through the 340 drug discount program took effect on January 1st. And as I've talked about in past uh, episodes, the program allows certain non-for-profit hospitals to purchase drugs at a discounted price. Hospitals now face a double hit. Not only are payments for separately payable drugs being slashed, pharmacies are looking to take emergency and other outpatient services away from hospital by providing these services in their retail outlets. Large box pharmacies have dominated the market providing drugs to hospitals enrolled in the 340B drug program. Currently, Walgreens holds almost one-third of the total 340B market, with CVS running a distant second. With high reimbursement rates, it has been a lucrative business for the drug giants. The cuts to the 340 drug, drug program have put a big dent in profits. CVS came up with a solution to take business away from Walgreens and to increase their own bottom lines. It's all about taking services from hospitals. No need to get profits from just, uh, from just selling drugs under the 340B drug program. CVS and Aetna recently announced an intention for the pharmacy giant to purchase the insurance company for $69 billion. This has been hugely complicated by the recent uh, news events that show that Aetna is being probed by California lawmakers uh, based on the deposition of Dr. J. Uh, J. Ken Alumna, who served as medical director for Aetna, who now informs us that he did not review medical records while making decisions on eligibility. The, the CVS decision was part of a long-range business strategy to change how healthcare is provided in the United States. 
CVS was planning to use its massive retail network to provide services to people enrolled in Aetna's insurance plans. CVS would like millions of patients going to hospital emergency rooms to get services at CVS clinics. This is a particularly big hit for rural critical access hospitals required to maintain emergency rooms. Patients that might have gone to local hospitals will instead get their 24-hour service services from CVS Pharmacy and fill their prescriptions while in the pharmacy. With the purchase of Aetna, they can also steer patients enrolled in Aetna's insurance plans from hospitals outpatient clinics to go directly to clinics located inside the CVS boxes. It would seem that that if the merger of CVS and Aetna can move forward, it will be a matter of time before Walgreens moves to purchase an insurance partner. Both Walgreens and Walmart are already eyeing Humana. Humana is playing a spoiler in Walgreens' recent attempt to purchase Rite Aid. It would be sweet revenge for Walgreens to purchase Humana. And I guess that we need to look at what's going to happen as a result of this uh, investigation into Aetna and whether or not that will uh, cut off the deal in between uh, CVS purchasing Aetna uh, in terms of these revelations. And with that being said, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Rack Monitor contributing editor and Monitor Money National Correspondent Tim Powell. And you can read Tim's very interesting reporting on the controversial 340B drug program in Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor E-News. Medicaid managed care continues to be a problem for many providers. Here to report on a Medicaid Advantage program in Texas is Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul, what's happening in Texas? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, as I began to report in the month of January, we've seen increased activity from Medicaid managed care organizations with regard to audits of facilities. But as we learned last week in the state of Illinois, and as we'll learn this week in the state of Texas, perhaps it would be best for Medicaid managed care organizations to first get their own houses and order before spreading the uh, pain and suffering to the provider community. A recent audit report uh, out of Texas found that the Texas Health and Human Services Commission, uh, which runs the Medicaid uh, program in that state, allowed uh, Superior Health Plan and Superior Health Plan Network to report $29.6 million in incentive and bonus bonus payments that were paid to affiliate employees in its financial in its financial statistical report. Now the problem here is that the contract that Superior has with the Texas HHSC uh, doesn't allow uh, for these types of payments to affiliate employees. They're very strict as far as how bonuses can be paid out. Uh, unfortunately, there were $31.2 million in total on allowable costs, uh, including the $29.6 million in bonuses and incentives, as well as almost half a million dollars in questionable costs. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's a disparity between the commission's actual business practices and the written con contract requirements uh, that are unable to be looked at uh, at the time that these financial reports are, are submitted to the state. Uh, so uh, now, surprisingly, uh, HHSC did not uh, dispute the outside auditor's finding, and they're they have uh, decided that they're going to act on the report's recommendations by September 1st. I would remind everyone that it is actually February 12th. So uh, the immediacy of not wanting to collect $29 million is a little bit surprising. Uh, but uh, now, 
uh, HHSC's response also states that they'll amend the contracts with managed care organizations to clarify the types of uh, businesses and the types of bonuses that can go out to affiliates uh, that have, and it is basically playing a game of catch up to make certain that these types of payment arrangements are not violating the contracts for which these uh, carriers are signing. So as we see, uh, unfortunately, the provider population is still going through a large type of uh, audit reckoning with Medicaid managed care organizations across the country, but perhaps it's best if they look in, uh, among at themselves and heal thyself first before they go on. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant, doctor's management. Last week, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel introduced us to a unique problem for providers who rely on non-medical software vendors for their EMRs. Who takes a heat in an audit? Is it the vendor or is it the provider? The answer might be in the outcome of a whistleblower case. Here now, reporting. Part two of our lead story is London-based whistleblower <coughs> attorney, Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. What's the outcome likely to be? Good morning, Chuck. Previously on this program, I've reported on a trend in whistleblower cases involving alleged frauds and billing improprieties arising out of the use of electronic health records. Specifically, I've previously reported on two whistleblower cases against producers of EHR software a case currently proceeding in the Middle District of Florida against Epic Systems, in which the government has not joined, and a case against EHR vendor eClinical Works that settled in May 2017 for $155 million. Today, I wanted to talk about a new whistleblower case involving fraud and EHR software, one arising out of the Southern District of New York. The case was initiated by whistleblower June Raffington against her employer, Chervier Long-Term Home Health Care Program, and its parent company, Bon Secours Health System. In her complaint, which is now in its sixth iteration, Ms. Raffington maintains that Chevrier and Bon Secours are liable for billing improprieties in conjunction with their use of an EHR billing software system that they call the McKesson billing software. Specifically, Ms. Raffington alleged that the defendant's billing software was deliberately programmed not to do split billing. Split billing, otherwise known as Medicare maximization, involves identifying and billing any liable third party prior to billing Medicare and Medicaid. Billing such parties before billing Medicaid is a requirement of participation in the Medicaid program for patients eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid, known as dual eligible. This means billing Medicare before billing Medicaid. In its ruling from last week, the court has allowed some of Ms. Raffington's claims involving the improper billing to stand and not be dismissed from her complaint. What is notable for us today is that despite this being her sixth time amending her complaint, Ms. Raffington has only named the health plans as defendants and has not tried to sue the manufacturer of the McKesson billing software. We will see if the court allows her to amend the complaint a further time, a seventh time, and add such a defendant. However, it seems unlikely at this point. As far as this case is concerned, it is illustrating a trend that healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel noted on last week's program that providers and health plans have not been suing the manufacturers of EHR software when billing problems arise. 
Nicole encouraged providers to look at their contracts with the EHR manufacturers to see if there was a basis for holding them accountable as a starting place for seeing if there's a basis to hold them accountable. If Ms. Raffington is successful in holding Chervier and Bon Secours liable for their problems with the, uh, the electronic health, health records programs, you can rest assured that Chervier and Bon Secours could be prompted to file their own case against the manufacturer of the McKesson billing software. In other words, this case remains a case to watch. Thanks. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very, very much. That was nationally prominent whistleblower Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law firm of Constantine Cannon. She was calling in live from the firm's London office, where it is 24 and a half minutes after 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And you can read Mary's reporting on this very important issue in Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor E-News. And now is the time for the results of our Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here is Nancy Beckley. Thanks, Chuck. And today, it looks like, again, our good friends at the American College the physician advisors are bringing our poll results to us. And this morning I wanted to do a poll regarding our listeners and if they are providing therapy services that's built to the Medicare Part B program. So these would be therapy services, whether you're a Part A institutional provider like a hospital or a skilled nursing facility or a core for a rehab agency or a physician's office or a private practice, which are considered Part B or suppliers to Medicare. And, you know, there's a huge interest in the top stuff going on in our program. So it would appear that 53% of our listeners this morning at their facility are billing for Medicare Part B. And we have uh, 6% that are not, uh, that say no, and 24% say that they are not sure, and 14% non-applicable. So, um, you know, Chuck, for sure, we have a large segment of our listeners this morning that have a vested interest in understanding and processing information related to the new legislation with the uh, permanent, ex- you know, exclusion of the therapy caps, as well as moving forward from a regulatory uh, perspective, understanding how CMS is going to roll out the instructions. Um, and uh, hopefully, Dr. Hirsch, you won't have to be reporting on the confusion on that one. <laughs> Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nancy, very much. Now let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in. David? Before we dive into the questions, I just wanted to offer a quick observation about one of the challenges in our jobs. You know, Mary was talking about split billing as the idea that you've got to uh, bill Medicare before Medicaid and the like. And it's interesting because I think for many listeners, split billing is also the idea of having an E&M service where you've got um, a physician providing part of it and a non-physician practitioner providing part of it. Um, shared savings is another term that has multiple meanings. And I think it's just a good lesson to uh, be careful with lingo and, and be sure you understand what, if someone's asking you a question or making a statement, make sure you understand, are they talking about the term in the same way that you are? Uh, Tim, this first question is for you. Rebecca wants to know, is 340B only for traditional Medicare and Medicaid, um, or does it also apply to supplemental insurance? It really is a purchasing program where it would apply to drugs that were purchased for the 340B drug program, and it does only apply to standard Medicare. Thanks, Tim. Uh, so Vicki wants to know, can an insurance company deny a case a year and a half after the fact through an audit saying that it met the interqual criteria that was in their electronic system, but not the current version of the system? The, they didn't update to the new version, and now they're saying there was an overpayment and the like. Well, there's a lot going on in this question. And uh, I'd say the answer depends on a few things. So first of all, a lot of this is going to come down to whether or not you have a contract with them. If you have a contract with them, it may very well limit how far back they can go in an overpayment. 
Um, so that's the, the first place to look. Um, and second, I mean, there are, get to be questions like, does, if they don't have a contract with you, are they able to impose interqual on you at all is a reasonable question, because absent a contract, the payer generally can't just opt what, what uh, requirements it's going to put on. So um, in about the minute we've got left, I'm going to ask Dr. Hirsch if you want to comment. I know I was interested in this, uh, this Aetna medical director situation. I know you've got some, some thoughts about it, and I just wonder if you ha want to share those with our listeners. Well, I think the first thing to do is always be careful what's reported in the media. So I think until we know the complete whole story and can see transcripts, we don't know for sure what's going on. I think there's simple things where a medical director could just look at the diagnosis and know whether it's covered or not without reading the whole medical record. That being said, I, I think it is worrisome that the physician is not reviewing all the records. And it, it's certainly from what it sounds like a complex case with lots of nuances. And Chuck, if you have time for one more, I've got a question for Nancy here. Does the Medicare cap only apply to freestanding PT centers? Wow, that's an incredibly good question, and it goes to the amount of confusion that's in the industry. There is no more therapy cap. The therapy threshold will apply to everybody that bills Medicare Part B services, regardless of where you are billing from, hospital, SNF, uh, private practice, and as their questioner states, a freestanding PT center. Supply to everybody. Thank you, Ms. Beckley. And Chuck, I'll turn it back to you and wish everyone a happy Valentine's Day. Thanks, David, very much. And Nancy, thank you. And Dr. Hurst, thank you again. And Tim Powell, thanks for uh, the response to the questions. That is going to be a wrap for this edition of Modern to Money. And I want to thank our outstanding guests, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, David Glazer, of course, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Tim Powell, J. Paul Spencer, and our special guest, nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. She was calling in live from the London office of Constantine Cannon. And we thank you for being with us this morning, and we look forward to your returning next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Monitor.